are listening to a recording of Los Altos Institute's course, Wokeness as Religion. My name is Stuart Parker, and I am the instructor. I made some comments about the insanity in New Zealand and Tasmania, and J.K. Rowling decided to amplify them. So uh, I've been deluged in new Twitter followers all weekend. So uh, that was nice. That was, I saw that. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, Christine contacted me when it happened because I didn't notice uh, and uh, pointed it out. So, um, all right. Well, I've got everybody here now. Prepare for your MSNBC interview. <laughs> <sir>. <laughs> yeah, I do have some, uh, I do have a lot of, yeah, there's some engagements that are starting to come up. People seem to want to talk to me again. Uh, that was, um uh, yeah, I seem. I think. Uh, I think after four attempts, uh, we can say the cancellation has failed. So uh, um, let me. Uh, so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk more about universities because they're so central to the process by which wokeness has been diffused. And so I know I've, I've spoken at some length already about uh, the rise of the American Liberal Arts College and things like that. But we're going to come back to the American Liberal Arts College again today because, well, simply because higher education um, has played such a central role here that um, it merits examination from multiple perspectives. And so um, I want to set up some things about higher education that, uh, well, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning and... Um, remind ourselves of the genesis of higher education systems in the West. Uh, now, I am not a fan of the idea that, um, uh, that the university system was something that we co-opted from the Arab world. I don't think that that um, is descriptive. We clearly co-opted the outfits. That's indisputable. All those weird gowns and hats we really, really liked um, Middle Eastern fashion a thousand years ago, and that certainly affected our universities. But I think that while there's a shared heritage with um, the Islamic world, because of course, the early stories about Western civilization are all stories about the Mediterranean world, um, most of, half of which is uh, now predominantly Muslim. So <clears throat> a few things. So, all right. So I've talked about the <clears throat> academy system in the Hellenistic Mediterranean, the Greek speaking parts of the Mediterranean uh, that really begins with Pythagoras in Southern Italy um, 2,600 years ago. And Pythagoras sets up really the, the, the model of what will become the academy. And you'll recall that initially the, the people who ran academies taught philosophies and having a philosophy meant going on a diet and um, believing that there was one supreme God. So one of the things I think it's very important to recognize is that while most people in the ancient world were polytheistic people, who believed that the world was literally full of gods, big and small, significant and insignificant, local and region-wide. Um, 
it was largely a self-evident truth to people that there were many gods. Uh, it wasn't a thing, people didn't believe in these gods. The gods just obviously existed based on their model of cause and effect, their theory of physics and how the universe worked. Nobody really started believing in gods until the 16th century. Um, now, the people in the academies uh, adopted this idea that had come out of India, that there was this big over God and that it was the true God that organized everything. Brahma, uh, after which the Brahman caste is named, right? Nobody worshiped uh, in original Hinduism. The only people permitted to worship Brahma were Brahmins because lesser people worshiped lesser gods. Uh, worshiping the big God was abstract. It was uh, much more interior, much, much uh, less um, pageantry to it. And that's really the spirit of the academies from the beginning. Now, there were um, four... Uh, so we've got to think about, so who's going to these academies? Um, Pythagoras's academy is not really what the academy system became. It was more, it functioned more like a monastery than it did the academies that would follow it. Um, but from Plato onwards, academies were about fashioning certain kinds of people. Two main kinds of people were meant to be fashioned in academies, scholars and rulers. Uh, and often people who, um, and, the, and the prominent academies tended to be run by people who didn't just preach the existence of one God, they preached ideas of monarchy. So academies in the Hellenistic world were academies in cities that were run either as democracies or oligarchies, somewhere in between. They were cities where decisions were made deliberatively um, until uh, the advent of Alexander the Great. Uh, one of the, uh, so Alexander uh, was educated by Aristotle one of the uh, founders of the two main academy systems that would go on to succeed. Uh, Plato, uh, people, followers of Plato and followers of Aristotle, unlike the majority of their neighbors, believed that democracy was bad and that society should be hierarchical and at the top of that hierarchy should be a king. Now, there were academies that didn't go on to the same level of success that didn't have that same theory about themselves. Uh, the Epicureans did not uh, believe that there might not be any God at all, that the universe was a giant accident, that it was eternal, unintentional. Uh, and it's the Epicureans that first came up the idea that it was composed of atoms. Uh, and might be expanding. So uh, the Epicureans didn't teach the same ideas about hierarchy. Uh, similarly, the Stoics, although the Stoics were the, were the academy 
the one academy to come out of the Latin West as opposed to the Greek East, uh, the Stoics were about um, the citizen, the consul, elective office, the citizen soldier, service to uh, one's peers. Uh, however, most people who sought higher education for their kids uh, couldn't necessarily afford those things. They joined Judaism, they joined Christianity, they hired freelance tutors. The Sophists and the Cynics uh, among those free groups of freelance tutors. But starting with Alexander's conquests, all of those civic cores that I talked about before, the bulletaria, the places where decisions were made through deliberation, Alexander closed every bulletarion in the Greek world. He opened only one in the city he built in his own name, Alexandria. Alexandria retained the democratic trappings of the world before Alexander's conquests, democratic trappings that uh, he removed. So these academy systems um, continue to exist and they continue to educate the elite of the Greek and Roman speaking world uh, until around the year 379 and the beginning of what's called the Theodosian dynasty. Whereas Constantine had first made uh, Christianity an official Roman religion, it was Theodosius I and his followers who built Christianity's monopoly in the Roman world. And it's with Theodosius I starting in the 380s that the academies begin to be shuttered by the Roman Empire. And what happens to their employees? Well, those with views congenial to Christianity go to work for the state in its new Christian education system. Uh, this system in, uh, starts in the East, it's urban centered. Um, it's administered by high ecclesiastical officials like bishops and the people with the uh, ideas most congenial to uh, this are the Aristotelians and the Platonists. So there's a fusion of Aristotelianism, Platonism and this incipient form of thinking, this, this new ideology called Christianity. And because and this idea that this is an institution it's, it, that does not merely broker your society's education, it is anointed by God. It tells you that you're a follower of the one true God. And it tells you that um, you are part of this monarchical system of relationships, of hierarchy, leading all the way up to God. Uh, in the 500s, rural education starts happening uh, through these new monasteries that are being created by Benedict of Nursia and his followers. 
but there's a difference between rural and urban education. Um, urban education, you can technically use to class jump. If you somehow manage to get your kid into one of these schools, that kid could come out with credentials and power that they didn't have, that your family didn't possess when you invested in sending one of your kids to an elite school. In rural areas, it doesn't work that way. In rural areas, yes, your kid can get an education, but they have to take vows of celibacy. Your family can't class jump as effectively because um, whoever gets the education in your family and then isn't allowed to reproduce. And even if they do reproduce, they can't acknowledge the person they fathered as a legitimate heir. So while cities are really decimated in many ways during the Middle Ages and mostly collapse, uh, the education system remains uh, education for people who are ambitious to use that education to lift uh, the social standing of their lineage uh, that remains something you can only do in cities. Now, in the West, uh, education comes into being not under the uh, higher education uh, coalesces not under the aegis of the state. The church creates the cathedral school system starting in the 590s, where, uh, where cathedrals uh, largely working with people trained in, you know, from these academic lineages based on Aristotelianism and Platonism, they're the ones working in the cathedral schools. When Charlemagne becomes the first Holy Roman Emperor in the year 800, one of his edicts is to require every cathedral to run a cathedral school. A cathedral is from a technical standpoint, we focus on the architectural features of cathedrals today. But the difference between a cathedral and another church is that a cathedral is the religious building located in the city that contains the bishop. And so again, you see there's this very urban centric idea, even in the massively rural uh, Western Europe. Uh, and most nobility is in rural areas. Most nobles aren't participating in this system. Uh, and it's a highly effective system. It maintains um, the existence of an educated urban elite um, when demography by itself would be insufficient to sustain that. The imposition of these obligations on the church by the Holy Roman emperors uh, means that Western Europe punches above its weight in terms of uh, education. But as I mentioned in a previous class, during the high middle ages, during the 1100s, the hegemony of the cathedral schools is threatened all over Western Europe. Exciting new ideas are coming back from the Middle East because of the Crusades. Exciting new texts are coming back from the Middle East because of the Crusades. The Sufi religion uh, is discovered and begins to inspire uh, great writers like Geoffrey Chaucer, uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach, Chrétien de Troyes. Many of the early grail romances um, written um, 
by men for an audience primarily of female courtiers are um, essentially based on Sufi mysticism. And of course, Sufism is viewed as um, almost heretical, even in the Islamic world. So we have the rediscovery of a lot of Aristotle's work at this time. We've got all this exciting Middle Eastern knowledge. And what starts to happen is that people lecturing in the cathedral schools start giving unorthodox lectures and they get fired. And uh, they go into the streets. Francisco. Just a quick question, Stuart, if you could put it into perspective for me. I, I, I'm not, uh, I don't know everything about uh, religious orders, but the Sufis, so was that the philosophy if, as a, really simply understand it was more of a direct connection with a, with a, a, a deity with, with the deity. Is that, is that part of how. That's definitely that, part of it. It has a, it has an inherently anarchistic element to it that upsets people uh, direct uh, because what it is, is Gnosticism cloaked in Islam. Uh, so personal revelation, interest in esoteric texts, um, anarchic structures. The reason Islam can metabolize Sufism and it, to domesticate it to a degree is that Islam sanctifies the chaos of the marketplace, whereas Christianity does not. Or Christianity has to be massively hacked by John Calvin to sanctify the marketplace. And all kinds of anarchistic things happen in Christianity because of Calvin's modifications. Um, it, it, it does pose a challenge to the imposition of orthodoxy and authority. And uh, the, the other thing about Sufism, um, you know, I, I believe that much of the, I believe that a portion of wokeness is actually this um, was an attempt by Sufis to notify us of the problem we were facing that turned on them because Another part of Sufism is this idea that you are seeking a, a greater level of awareness. In this way, it has characteristics of Platonism that um, weren't adopted by Christianity. The metaphor of the cave is a powerful one in Sufism, this idea that you're just looking at the, the, the shadows on the walls of the cave, but you want to actually be able to see the world, not just its pale reflections. So central to the Sufic mission is self-understanding and the need to break through all of these veils between you and a true perception of the world and a true perception of yourself. Hence, its most popular art form being the Dance of the Seven Veils. That was so important in the courtly life of high medieval Islam. So... Uh, now, the, the whirling dervishes were also Sufis, yes. weren't they? Yes, yeah. that's correct. Well, what they're doing, uh, let me explain the practice. The Sufis are immaterialists. So they... Um, they believe that in some ways your senses are part of the veil, that seeing things with your eyes rather than the eyes of God, rather than with your spiritual eyes is getting in the way. So the reason they do that dance is because it screws up your proprioception and your balance. And so it, 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 
it produces sensory illusions. So first of all, you can see that some of what your senses produce is an illusion uh, that, uh, oh, look, I'm, why, why do I feel like I'm falling? That's an illusion. So I have to, I have to make my awareness push past my senses. Uh, so it's a discipline where you keep turning, even though your senses are telling you in, with increasing vehemence that you need to stop. So it's, so it's viewed as subordinating the body to the mind and exposing the illusions of the senses. And uh, there are civic practitioners of this up to the present day. Um, now, they were called whirling dervishes as a pejorative. Uh, when Europeans saw the Sufi dancers, many pejoratives came out. Um, in Jonathan Swift's era, they were called yahoos because uh, yahoo is a holy word in Sufism that they would often repeat while whirling outside the city. So um, yeah, there's, I mean, well, maybe one day we will do a whole course on Sufism and its implications because it, um, it's because there are also elements of, I'm very good on the aspects of Sufism that come from the West but there's also a whole bunch of cultural transmission that comes out of Persia and India. Uh, a lot of uh, Sufi um, parables and fairy tales do not come from the West or from the Arab world. They're repurposed um, Persian fairy tales. Uh, and um, so to get back to uh, to get back to, to Paris in the 12th century, and not just Paris, but all over Europe, there's a um, particularly in Western Europe, there's a set of events that unfold, whether you're in London or Glasgow or Paris. At the start of the 1100s, your cathedral school system is working fine. By the middle of the 1100s, all of your best lecturers are working for student instructor co-ops in the streets. By 1200, those co-ops have been lured back to the church with guarantees of academic freedom and funding. Uh, that uh, all over the place, there's this sense that we can't let, we cannot lose control of the intellectual life of our cities. We're gonna have to make an accommodation with these independent minded people. We have to create a new kind of institution over which we can exert some level of control, but within which is contained a level of intellectual freedom we will not grant to the rest of society. So, Universities are good places for people with heretical beliefs to work. Uh, because once Paris, Paris is the first place to come up with this model to lure the University of Paris back to the cathedral by calling it the University of Paris. Uh, and once the French do that, this solution to the problem of the university uh, spreads very rapidly through Western Europe. So this is a very impressive social contract, right? This involves a brokerage between elites and independent-minded intellectuals. 
that really does not break until now. Um, I, I think the university system is, uh, is dead. It will, it's going to have to be burned to the ground and reconstructed. Um, it's too, it, it, it can't be fixed now, but it's impressive that it lasted this long. Um, it's very hard to think of institutions other than the one that created it, the Roman Catholic Church, that have kept going for 800 years. That is a heck of a run. Um, so the university system is to be admired and I think will should remain a subject of intense inquiry because of its incredible resilience uh, in uh, carrying out this job of creating a space for people to think. Uh, universities are different from cathedral schools in that they have merit, more meritocratic features. They're more meritocratic in their admissions policies. They let in more people just because they're smart. And there's a reason now for rural people to come to the city if they're intellectuals. If you want to be an intellectual and you don't want to end up in some monastic backwater, uh, you're going to try and uh, come to the city and get educated at a real university. Um, the other thing is the great professions. As Western Europe continues to recover uh, in the high Middle Ages, economically and demographically, uh, it's really the universities where we see are as one of the most important locations in the birth of the class that will become the gentry. The birth of the class that uh, will become the backbone uh, first of mercantilism and then of capitalism. And that's and one of the features of the universities is yes, like the cathedral schools, they teach the seven liberal arts, the trivium and the quadrivium the basis of all Roman education starting uh, during, even in the old Republic. There are the, the three elementary subjects, the four secondary subjects, music being one of the secondary subjects, uh, you know, reading uh, uh, an elementary subject. And we see the traces of the trivium and the quadrivium still imprinted on uh, our elementary schools and high schools. Uh, however, what made universities attractive was their emphasis on graduate degrees, something the cathedral schools had not shown a lot of interest in because the people who went to cathedral schools were mostly the children of the aristocracy who were being made sophisticated and accomplished and literate. The university has attracted a broader swath of people, and that was especially important during the rapid population growth and urbanization we see in Europe in the 11 and 1200s during what we call the medieval warm period. Medicine, theology, and law. Now, where have we heard those three things before. Those are the three powerful groups that Andrew Jackson would will seek to smash in the 1820s in America. 
Here, we're getting the backstory of why Andrew Jackson attacks those specific credentials 700 years later, 600 years later. Graduate degrees are really one of the key loci we see the beginnings of the gentry in. If you are not from noble blood, you could wish for nothing better for your family's future than for one of your sons to leave university with a doctorate in law, theology, or medicine. It meant that you people with those degrees could get very, very high wage work, the highest wage work in Europe. There might be higher income work if you were a lord or a baron. You might may take in more money per year, but that wouldn't be work in exchange for, that wouldn't be money in exchange for things you personally did. And that dream, right? We're all old enough to remember that the, the, that uh, law and medicine were like those two brass ring degrees that your parents wanted you to get. Uh, those, were, those were still the highest status jobs 600 years later. Uh, so these graduate degrees um, are really the center of the universities and they help to create this new kind of person whose wealth and power is based on a credential received for comprehending a large body of esoteric knowledge. Now, that's of course also, um, right, that's, that's the basis of all bureaucratic power as well. You can see how, and this is why we find Michel Foucault helpful, that part of the rise of the gentry is inextricable from the, from the, from the reconstitution of bureaucracy. Now, China is a whole separate historical path, right? They, they never destroyed their bureaucracy, but most of the world did, and they had to rebuild bureaucracy. And bureaucratic authority is also linked to these new ideas about what makes you a valuable person, not just what makes you valuable, what makes you an authoritative person. So the bourgeoisie ultimately they lock down trade, they lock down the professions, then they can acquire land. But the bourgeoisie's accumulation of land as part of a service gentry in the West um, follows uh, the rise of these professions. Now, these professions face various challenges. Uh, and one of the most interesting is the... Um, uh, the medical profession actually is fought to a draw. The medical profession has to reconstitute itself in a new form following a series of street battles that uh, they lose to the other people practicing medicine, the barber surgeons. Because uh, physicians uh, didn't really know that much about actual human bodies. They knew a lot about theoretical human bodies. They knew their Galenic medicine back to front. They knew who needed a good bleeding, uh, but uh, they, uh, they weren't you know, particularly effective at even getting the bleeding done. 
Um, the barber surgeons were much lower class, but you could see why they'd have an advantage in the street battles as well, because it was their monopoly on, on sharp knives that was the whole basis of their authority. Anyway, that's why we say the College of Physicians and Surgeons, that's the concession to the barbers. Uh, they, a uh, bunch of, uh, so there, were the, there was that challenge. And as I mentioned, there was also the rise of the lab-centered university in Europe in the 19th century, uh, something that the United States did not choose to participate in during the 19th century but that fundamentally transformed education in, uh, uh, in Europe, Western Europe. Now I'm gonna introduce some brand new stuff and we'll start to see some interesting complications. So it's probably reasonable for you to assume that all the history I've told you was a history of men. That's, that is correct. But uh, as I mentioned before, one of the reasons we ended up with the residential school system in Canada is that um, there is a terrible labor shortage uh, for primary education in the 19th century. Um, and uh, the response to that labor shortage is the introduction of female teachers, the willingness to hire female teachers. Now, female teachers, would need to be credentialed in some way. And obviously you couldn't, you know, just send women to university. So one of the features we see in the 19th century is the emergence of a new kind of post-secondary education, the normal school. Uh, and I'm, I'm old enough that um, I, uh, I remember um, Anne McLeod, uh, my mother's uh, former colleague, her degree in education was from the Vancouver Normal School. Uh, she got her degree before the Normal School was invited onto the campus of the University of British Columbia. Uh, so because this was a female-dominated profession uh, with the rise of the Normal School, and the Normal School is very important because pedagogy up until that point had been very violent. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you get the big, strong guy to teach math and, you know, you just, you know, you'd hit the kids until they got it right. Um, this was obviously not going to fly with a female teaching profession. So there was a whole new body of knowledge that had to be rapidly created and rapidly understood to develop the kind of persuasive methods of education we see today. Uh, one, very, one that really reconfigures student-teacher uh, relationships. Starting in 1869, there's another new kind of school, the nursing school. Uh, nursing, practice developed for the Crimean War. Uh, this idea that we're now so thin on the ground, even with conscription, we, we if women are willing to do um, field medicine work, uh, let's give them an inferior degree and let them do that work. Uh, to do this kind of war-based paramedic work, which then began to develop a civil component. Uh, there's an additional ingredient, um, 
which is uh, the rise of social work. Now, social worker is not originally understood to be a credential, but it is understood to be a female occupation. Uh, and following the disaster of the California gold rush and the moral panic of having towns in the West with too many single men, uh, the um, uh, uh, very uh, in, an interesting social innovation begins in America um, called the rescue home. And we'll talk a lot about this, more about this when um, we do the Canadian social gospel and Canada's specific vulnerability to wokeness. But uh, the, while Anglo-America was lagging behind Europe in a number of ways, it's um, the body of knowledge developed by rescue home matrons that forms the basis of social work and a branch of nursing called public health nursing. And uh, initially we have these three, we have the social workers, the teachers, the nurses are on a parallel path. They're in a set of inferior separate universities and you have the male dominated professions continuing in the other universities. Uh, but as, but with the rise of the lab in Europe and America reluctantly following along with some of those things eventually, there's this problem that universities have had from the beginning that starts really impinging on their coherent functioning. And that is on the one hand, the job of a university is to fashion an elite citizen uh, to help them develop their tastes, to help them develop their morality, not with any financial motive, rather you're teaching them to appreciate things to which no monetary value can be attributed, right? So that the, you know, so, so in some ways, right, you have elites sending their children to universities so that those children can be recognized as members of the elite. Uh, that's why uh, Kurt Vonnegut referred to Yale as plantation owners tech. Uh, there is a, um, so there's that, that, that fashioning of the, uh, the self-fashioning of the, of the elite and the idle rich. The other though is professionalization. This idea that you're teaching the bureaucrats and experts bodies of knowledge that they need to get their work done. Uh, and these two purposes, sometimes when you have a fairly stable society, they don't appear to be oppositional, but they've always contained paradoxes and oppositions. So one, uh, so in the, so what happens is following the GI bill, the ideal of the lab-centered university is globalized and made accessible. And Americans, Europeans, Japanese people, all kinds of working class people and middle class people pour into universities after the Second World War. Well, hang on with the people. 
The GI Bill doesn't give women anything. Even if the women were in the military, they mostly get a punch in the face when they get back. Uh, the integration of, but after the first phase of universities being like this, universities seem pretty culturally stable. You see um, fraternities expanding into the public university system. You see all kinds of things that we had associated with the elite becoming more accessible in the university system. We see this accommodation of like engineers as like rough and tumble university students. That's very much culturally part of this first phase uh, that I would put from 1945 to 1963, where we see a popularization of the lab-centered university and the unprecedented inclusion of working class people. This goes into a different phase in 63, when Kennedy begins sending advisors to Vietnam. And then two coincident things merge. The universities swallow the nursing schools, the social workers. The social workers were the first ones let in, then the nurses, then the teachers, and universities because, cease to be a simply male gendered environment. Uh, that yes, of course, there were always female students, there were always sororities, blah, 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 or there were at some places and there were women's colleges. But the elite women's colleges, uh, Wellesley, Vassar, places like that, they begin admitting male students. Uh, universities that didn't admit female students, they cease to exist. Um, so starting really in 63, we see the increasing feminization culturally of universities. Uh, and we start seeing the consequences of that um, with um, movies like Animal House, uh, we start seeing these conflicts where academic administrators have a new imperative, which is to reduce or eliminate forms of excessive masculinity. Fraternities cease being viewed as laudable bodies. Increasing regulation, increasing investigation of fraternities, starting in the late 70s. Um, pranks played by engineers, daredevil pranks suddenly are not supposed to be something you applaud. All kinds of forms of youthful masculine expression come under attack. Now, uh, I, think, I think most of us would, would have been in favor of those measures when they came along. We might have enjoyed Animal House. We might have enjoyed the, the, the criticisms of this. But I think we would have seen this as a positive force. Let's make our campuses less dangerous. Let's make them less violent. 
let's get more intolerant of all the rape here, because God knows there, there's a lot of that, uh, remains so, right? Universities remain incredibly sexually violent places. Uh, so most people would have seen, especially during the rise of second wave feminism in the 1970s, um, that this feminization of university campuses was an unalloyed, unqualified good. Uh, now, as we slide into the 1980s and austerity begins, neoliberalism begins, we realize that uh, we've already overproduced elites. There are too many credentialed people in our society for all the spaces we have for the people with the credentials. But that only intensifies as government bureaucrats are fired by the thousands. Uh, that, uh, that intensifies as various government services that were available to everyone cease to be the closure of all the welfare dentistry in Canada, things like that. Uh, so we have all of these different forces acting on the universities. And depending upon the kind of university you're at, different things are happening there. In large public universities, like the vast majority of universities in Canada, um, you, um, you don't see really rapid or strange cultural changes. The world in the large public universities is slow in this regard. Universities tend to be uh, multi-partisan places. They tend to... Um, be uh, um, they're, they're, they're multi-partisan places and you'll find that there are certain credentials. It's in the 80s where we start seeing, depending upon your credential from a university, that had a lot to do with your political alignment. In the 80s and 90s, pharmacists voted Republican. Engineers voted Republican. Sociologists voted Democrat, right? that the more practical the thing you're learning in university, the more directly it, the, the more the technical knowledge you're getting is technical knowledge you're going to use at your job in a consequential way, the more politically conservative you tend to be. And at this time, having advanced degrees uh, is not viewed as like a liberal or conservative thing. It's just having an advanced degree, everybody agrees it's good to have an advanced degree. But these degree, advanced degrees do not become debased at a, an even rate. Pharmacists, pharmacy remains a pretty damn good credential to have, a credential that you can turn into money. But one of the first things universities overproduce is university instructors. Uh, nobody's going to hire a doctor of sociology to do anything other than make more doctors of sociology. Uh, that's the only job. And in politics, political scientists are viewed as such a ridiculous profession. Nobody wants a political scientist actually working for your party. I mean, you still hire them to work for the government where it doesn't really matter. But no political party is going to hire a political scientist to do political strategy for them. No, we'll hire political science maybe to make public policy for some weird minority group we don't care that much about. But uh, so 
we see with the beginnings of austerity and neoliberalism, the depreciation of the value of university degrees at uneven rates. And this is where the specific case of America and the liberal arts college is incredibly consequential and screws us all. American liberal arts colleges, I mean, some uh, Ivy League universities, right, mostly are mostly bigger than American liberal arts colleges. But Brown, Dartmouth, those are basically like an American liberal arts college. And one of the features of the American liberal arts college is they don't offer degrees in anything that's worth anything. Um, they offer you, you, you can't get an MD, you can't become a pharmacist, you can't get a hotel management PhD like you can at Cornell uh, or UBC, the only other university that does that. Um, the practical degrees largely don't exist at the liberal arts colleges because the liberal arts colleges are all places that have made a choice, which is that their primary purpose is elite self-fashioning. It is not professional training. Those universities don't understand themselves to be manufacturing bureaucrats or experts. They understand themselves to be manufacturing engaged citizens who, you know, just happen to be part of lineages worth millions or billions of dollars. Those liberal arts colleges have also experienced significant culture loss with the destruction of the fraternities. Um, the fraternities were always the biggest and most powerful at the places that decided they were about elite self-fashioning. Because if you are trying to become a bureaucrat, you don't need frat connections in mid-century America. But if you're going to be a man on Wall Street, you do. Uh, that's where those fraternity connections are going to help you. So the liberal arts colleges... At the end of the 20th century and beginning of the 21st century, undergo a major culture shift. Like everything else, they're overproduced. Liberal arts colleges are now competing with each other for the children of the haute bourgeoisie. And Though their funding model is such that their only ability to make meritocratic admissions, the only way to admit enough smart people that the university continues to look smart, is to get more gifts and more admissions from the super rich. And that means that uh, whereas Harvard, if, if you're a misbehaving member of the super rich, Harvard won't give you a degree. Harvard will still expel you because Harvard has an endowment, um, you know, worth more than a medium-sized country. It, it has a brand that uh, will uh, go on long after the campus is destroyed. Um, Harvard has all these things. Center College, not so much. Kenyon College, not so much. And what that means is total collapse of academic standards for uh, at liberal arts colleges. You still get the highest level of instruction, but no effective enforcement of standards. You also have this new phenomenon where people are trying to rebuild um, social, uh, social power 
and social relevance for these institutions in a radically feminized environment. And that means that feminized forms of social control really move to the fore at these universities. We all know from observing girls in grade six that shunning is one of the most important forms of feminized social control. Another thing we associate with more feminized types of social control is um, a different politics of emotion. A politics of emotion in which you are essentially saying, care about this person over here. We're going to pity this particular person or this particular group of people. Don't pity me, I'm a carer. My, my social power comes from my ability to care for people who are in some way less endowed with things that matter. Um, so you see um, performances of vicarious care become important. Social boundaries mediated by shunning become more important. Uh, and I would argue that the male response to this, I don't think this is a form of feminine social control, but I do think it's a form of feminized social control. Men respond to this with emotional histrionics. That's, uh, that, that in an environment like that, where um, people are competing to look after other people as a way of aggrandizing themselves socially, um, your move is to claim to be someone who needs to be looked after. Uh, and that, that's something we see coming out of male students in these environments. Another feature we might associate with um, feminized ideas of social control is rapidity of social contagion. So fads rip through these liberal arts colleges faster and pull more people in than you get uh, in other environments. Now, why does all this matter? What's going on in these elite backwaters? This is what I got wrong because I did see this happening 15 years ago. And I thought, you know what? We're fine. We've got a firewall here. This is never going to hit a major public university. Um, these strange things that are going on in liberal arts colleges. Um, one of the other features of liberal arts college politics I should mention before I get to the big stuff is in the 1960s and 70s, student activism was about the theory that you could use your university as a staging ground for a revolution in larger society. This was actually explicitly the founding position of the SFU sociology and anthropology department. At Simon Fraser University, um, the faculty voted that that's what they were, the, their department was for. It was to use SFU as a staging ground for a revolution. And that, that was the premise of anti-Vietnam War politics and things like that. We see something very different in this new liberal arts college. Social conflicts are at the micro scale. They're about rooting out 
a single problematic business, a single problematic individual. Someone is labeled as problematic, the university does something about them. Maybe it's an instructor, maybe it's a student. Um, it's at these liberal arts colleges where we see really the beginnings of modern post politics. And that's because these universities are subscribing, these students are subscribing to a theory of the world, a theory of causation that is highly medieval. The idea that it's not that the university is the staging ground, it's that the university is the microcosm. And if you create the right microcosm, it will radiate outwards into the rest of the world by sympathetic magic. This is the theory that underpins Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, right? What happens in the world above will sympathetically happen in the world below. The conflict between Titiana and Oberon is what, what shapes the world below to produce the conflict between the Duke and the Duchess, right? The confusion in the world above about the changelings produces confusion in the world below because the world below is in sympathy with the world above. It's, um, it's how medievals thought about causation. And it is these theories of sympathetic magic that came not consciously, but unconsciously to underpin these people's ideas. Why? because these people are the useless, irrelevant members of the elite. They want to believe that their conflict with the shawarma vendor for over his cultural appropriation, because it turns out he's from Mexico, um, you know, we're gonna get rid of the cultural, cultural appropriation here. Um, that conflict has meaning because they see themselves as the world above and that the world below will naturally conform to the structures they enact in the world above. This was a popular theory in green politics in the 80s. It was called the embryo theory. My political mentor, uh, David Lewis, not the New Democrat, the green, um, David Lewis uh, wrote at length about the problems of this embryo theory, about how it was sympathetic magic and uh, had to be rooted out of the movement. Well, embryo theory is rooted out of green politics and it's kicked down the road into these liberal arts colleges. Now, a brief digression on cultural appropriation. Like many other things that people think are just stupid, um, cultural appropriation actually was once a respectable idea. Here's what it referred to. Uh, have you guys seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The uh, Coen Brothers movie? Okay, it's, um, it's worth a look because it's, I mean, it's, it's brilliant, right? Because it's, they restage the story of the Odyssey in um, 1920s America with George Clooney as Odysseus. I mean, who isn't going to enjoy that? The, uh, but it's about, what it does, the Coen brothers put forward a theory about what the Odyssey is really about that it's not about what happened after the Trojan War, it's what happened before the flood, that the world worked differently before the deluge and that after the deluge, a different kind of man became the kind of man you're supposed to be. And that's Odysseus, because Odysseus is wily, Odysseus is devious. Uh, that these things are not worth a lot 
in the siege of Troy, but they are in the world that comes later. And so these three guys do this thing that is just normal for the underclass to do in uh, Dixie. Um, they sing, they make music. They have, know all these old songs, all these old folk songs. And Columbia Records goes to the South and it records all these songs and it turns them into its intellectual property. It takes a bunch of music and reconceptualizes that music as the idea of the music and then appropriates it. Takes a thing that was owned by everyone, seizes it from everyone else and appropriates it and that thing is culture. Pieces of culture are chipped off and monopolized by the record companies. That's what cultural appropriation is, or was. I was perfectly reasonable to oppose cultural appropriation when it had a normal definition. But at these liberal arts colleges, it becomes a kind of stay in your lane racism. This idea of effacing imaginative empathy with your inferiors. The idea is that only black people can know black things only and they only black people can make black music and, and, and obviously, you know, you need native people to teach native courses because, because knowledge, the authority to teach, the authority to know does not live in the mind, it lives in the blood. Uh, now, like so much of the rest of wokeness, this is white supremacist humble bragging. Uh, because they're claiming that white people own the vast majority of the knowledge in the world. Sure, it's a small price to pay to say, okay, I guess black people own black literature or black people own the blues. If you believe as a white person, you own the enlightenment and math and capitalism, <laughs> you can see how cultural appropriation discourse is about a class that is in danger of becoming irrelevant, a very insecure class staking out a claim to civilization itself. And so the liberal arts college, now what was supposed, what the bourgeoisie right had monopolized was the politics of sensitivity. And we see now, the liberal arts colleges are, of course, the first places with trigger warnings. Um, now, triggering again is, look, the term trigger warning is itself nonsense. Triggering is a problem that if you have post-traumatic stress disorder, as I do, um, one of the things that happens to you is that you have a lot of like repressed memories or memories that you've domesticated. You have memories of traumatic things or you've, you've blanked them from your memory. It's usually a combination of the two. Some of the traumatic things you've deleted your ability to recall. Some of the traumatic things you can recount and know exactly what happened, but at a level of emotional distance. Triggering is when a set of words or particular sensory information reactivate a memory of a traumatic thing that you've either repressed or don't control. And it causes you to have physical symptoms. 
you, um, I lose, um, I lose the ability to see my eyes roll back and I can't make my pupils come back down. Uh, sometimes I shake. Uh, I always lose the ability to regulate my body temperature. Uh, it will fluctuate wildly during these episodes. Now, in other words, the only things that can trigger you are things you don't expect. So how the, how in the fuck is a trigger warning supposed to work? My friend Tommy, right? He was, you know, nearly killed by a gr grenade in Afghanistan. Um, it's not when people talk about grenades that he's triggered. It's not when people talk about Afghanistan that he's triggered. It's not when people show films of grenades being thrown in Afghanistan. No, it's a particular set of spice mixes. Certain curry combinations that he was smelling just before the grenade went off. That's what will make him stop breathing. In other words, 100% of the people who claim to be triggered in these universities are not triggered. Um, they're upset. Being triggered is not upset or sad or angry. We already had words for those things. Simply being upset is simply being upset. But one of the things that, as I talked about with the early uh, convents, people like Kateri Takakwita, performances of fragility can turn into social contagions in strongly female gendered environments. In a patriarchal culture, right, the Salem witch trials are preceded first by the contagious hysteria. And then the contagious hysteria has to be explained. And that's when the witches and the devil arrive in Salem. So people are competing to appear triggered. Why? Because the demonstration of sensitivity remains the highest value in the culture of the haute bourgeoisie as it has been from its very inception. What's happened is that all of the self-control that used to counterbalance the fragility and the sensitivity is sheared away in the modern American liberal arts college. There, um, and so, the uh, uh, so this these become these once again become the best places for self fashioning the best places to make a self that seems as liberal and as elite as possible. Now here's the thing that I mistook. The reason I didn't understand how this was going to spread was because I didn't want to know what bad financial decisions I was making at the time. Um, one of the other ways that liberal arts colleges retained their relevance is that they did not proletarianize their labor like other universities did. Simon Fraser University, where I taught for, uh, I guess, on and off uh, nearly a decade, 
80% of the people teaching there were temporary workers like me who were hired on hire at will contracts that ended every four months. Profoundly financially insecure people. Harvard, right? I think I told you the year I graduated, there was a history department job at Harvard uh, to become an assistant professor at history at Harvard University. You would be paid $24,000 a year. Same with the American University of Beirut. There was such overproduction of instructors like me that um, you could just destroy all their labor rights and wages and still get excellent instructors in your classrooms. And that's what most universities did. Uh, not the liberal arts colleges. They figured out that their end of the market would be providing this kind of pastoral care to students so that there would be a very, very high instructor to student ratio, but much more importantly, the instructors would be paid well and they would have high levels of job security, that they would maintain the tenure system in its most intact form as all the other universities debased theirs. Well, the thing about academics is um, they, they only breed with other academics generally. Uh, academic conferences are a crazy scene because academics often think that the people in the city in which they teach are beneath them. Maybe if they teach in a big city like Vancouver, they'll date people there. But most academics are, you know, teaching in small towns and fly over state America. They're teaching at junior colleges. Their whole sense of their social standing is that they are separate from the community they're teaching in. Uh, that uh, they're above the community they're teaching in. And PhDs are notorious for only marrying other PhDs. When I was living in Providence, Rhode Island, you know, the big, you know, degree exporting economy area of uh, the US, um, you know, my, my ex was, was doing her PhD at Brown. And uh, I would go to these parties and I remember writing, uh, in the early days of Facebook and say, what kinds of professions host parties where everybody at the party has the same job as you? And it's like, well, that's cops, Marines, and dentists mainly, and, and people with PhDs. Uh, it's a very socially insular environment. So what happens when the most financially secure and highest status people in this large North America-wide social scene are all in one place. Well, they're the highest status people at the conferences. They're the people whose, not just professional alliance, but whose social interactions produce the most capital for you. While the liberal arts colleges from the perspective of how many students they educate and those students impact on America, underperform. In terms of their staff, it's the reverse. The people who teach at liberal arts colleges have such 
disproportionately great influence in academic contexts. Because I'll tell you the level of difference in rank. I, uh, did I tell you the Pi Day story? Uh, okay, so uh, when I was teaching at SFU, um, the history department um, got a new chair. And uh, it was a real shame because the previous chair had just been excellent. I mean, he was impossible to deal with socially, but he was a pleasure to work for. And he, um, uh, and he was replaced by a, you know, sort of charismatic, sympathetic person uh, who, of course, didn't entirely live up to that. Uh, one of the things she organized was she, there had long been a tradition among the all-female administrative staff in the history department of making pies for each other and celebrating Pie Day once a month. Um, and uh, so Judy Fraser and uh, Ruth Anderson and uh, Tessa Wright and these folks would have their pies and that was fine. One of the things that uh, more liberal-minded department chairs like to do is stir things up and uh, break down the boundaries between the different labor classes in their department, but usually in a way that hasn't really engaged in any class analysis of why those boundaries are there. So they decided they were going to do a special pie day, a sessional instructor's pie day, where the whole department would be invited. Those of us making roughly uh, one quarter per course what the permanent faculty were making were told to make and bring pies that we would present to the faculty for them to eat. Um, the problem was, and the administrative staff were conscripted into this as well. And it's like, so now we're making pies, but for somebody else. Um, so I show up in the pie room and the new chair of the department shows up for her initiative. And she says, oh, they're just finishing up the meeting down the hall, the monthly department meeting, which of course we weren't allowed to go to because that's not a boundary anyone wanted to break down. Uh, they'll be here in a minute. So then the guy who's retiring shows up and the um, former chair who has some intuitive knowledge, this is gonna be a disaster. Um, and then we wait and they won't lower themselves to come and eat the pies. So um, we take the pies home and leave. Uh, that even that initiative where we were supposed to show our total supplication was an insufficient difference of rank for them to be able to tolerate as a group being in a room with us as a group. So that's how bifurcated that labor system is. So when you superimpose that on an academic conference, imagine what you get, right? And academic conferences start changing because it's the people who are from these liberal arts colleges who are setting the tone at these conferences by being all the highest status, most secure people there. Uh, not all, but a disproportionate number of the high status secure people there. The, uh, and so all these mores and practices start trickling out 
the trigger warnings, all this other stuff, it starts diffusing out through the academic conference scene. And of course you live or die by academic conferences. That's your best chance at getting a better job. That's your best chance at being noticed by higher status academics. And it's your best chance of getting married and reproducing. Um, so people are coming to these conferences and the conferences really start to change. I ran out of the last academic conference I was at uh, in 2019, uh, some, a woman had done a, a paper about, um, I mean, really, honestly, it was just stamp collecting. I mean, literally, it was just stamp collecting. Uh, so we want to collect a lot of stamps from the 19th century. They were done by different European empires. She did this sort of banal presentation about how um, postal systems were a way that the great European empires uh, competed with each other. And this was an example of imperial competition. So I put up my hand and I said, I noticed that um, two of the packages, uh, two of the, the, the envelopes you showed us, show that the, 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 the envelope crossed from one empire's postal system into another's while those empires were at war. Is this not also a scene of profound, um, uh, of unprecedented new forms of imperial cooperation? And her response was, are you trying to hurt me? Why would you say that to me? Why would you show up at a conference and say something like that to me? Is your point to try and make me look bad? Is that what you're doing? That was not how academic conferences worked in 2004 when I started going, but that had become routine by the time I stopped that if the person up there had a higher rank than you, they simply needed to demonstrate their fragility and sensitivity in order to invalidate your question. That the culture of these super rich students at, uh, at places like Center College radiated out through the academic conference scene and became the norm and then started trickling down in our big institutions, indoctrinating a whole new set of kids who had nothing to do with the production of this. Whereas trigger warnings were a bottom-up thing at places like Brown and Vassar, they were a top-down thing at places like Simon Fraser or BCIT or UBC. And we then see the next stage of the contagion. It goes into female gendered syndical organizations. So the nurses, nursing isn't controlled by nursing departments. They create nurses who the college of nurses in a particular jurisdiction then has to recognize. Jurisdictions also have colleges of teachers that uh, broker and control professional credentials, colleges of psychology, the Bar Association. These places tended to be dominated by the richest people in those professions or people who were exceptionally unsuccessful at the actual job. Uh, or uninterested in doing the actual job of teaching or nursing or law or counseling. 
And those institutions then became part of this new sensitivity politics. And this, uh, and from there, we have, of course, have seen this radiating out through society at large. But uh, it's, um, uh, but it's this new, it's this, it's this coincidence of how elite forms of femininity work in a patriarchy colliding with this massive labor realignment to produce this whole new culture. And what's our through line here? Well, our through line here is that universities and their predecessors have risen or fallen by their claim of representing the one true faith. Now in the 19th century and 20th century, um, they moved from representing the Christian faith to uh, the faith of, of um, secularism, methodological atheism, the dominant ideas, not the most popular ideas, but the dominant philosophies of the liberal democracies of the 19th and 20th centuries. Universities have changed lanes. They see that secularism, methodological atheism, these are not, they're absolutely not the hegemonic ideas of the 21st century. And universities believe that they have a special role implicit in the existence of the university, implicit in its name, the everything school, right? That's, that, that, that's what university means in the Middle Ages. Um, yes, we are teaching the universe. We're teaching the entirety of creation. Um, that claim of the university is so powerfully baked into it that it understands itself to be producing and replicating the one true faith. The fact that the theology departments have been kicked out of the universities, except Harvard, interestingly enough, the fact that the theology departments have been locked out of the universities has, as is so often the case, intensified the theological nature of the university. That as long as there was a place for theology, theology did not have to be everywhere. But if you take its place away and you keep demanding the same social functions of the institution, then everybody effectively becomes a theologian. And that's increasingly the role that's being taken on. It's quite similar to the physical astronomers confronting Galileo going, we don't care what the evidence says. We have modeled the beauty of the universe with its series of crystalline spheres. We don't need pesky things like evidence getting in the way of that. And that's one of the reasons that the universities, as they've gone through this shift, have used, I would say, one of the more irresponsible turns of phrase that Michel Foucault has given us, you don't talk about discovering knowledge at a university. You talk about making knowledge. 
These are not knowledge discoverers. These are knowledge makers. The that shift from I am finding to I am making is absolutely a uh, it, it's a um, it's a bold shift. It suggests that you are part of an ancient priest class that really can make things true using nothing but words. It gets back to this Kabbalism, or as I'll, I'll say a bit later, Hermeticism, this idea of true name magic, uh, which we see as uh, increasingly conditioning how our universities work. So uh, that is today's 90-minute story. Uh, questions and comments, please. I have yeah. two questions. Um, one of them is um, your engagement uh, after uh, J.K. Rowland um, tweeted out uh, what you had said. And um, it was as though you had kicked a hornet's nest and it was amazing what came out and what what they were they were saying, and um, it made me think about uh, I guess the lecture um, maybe two weeks ago, and also the additional reading and talking about the horribles coming out, and they they just seem to the more bizarre and more cruel things that they were saying. I thought you know normally I I would just recoil from this kind of stuff but now you can this is uh staged and they're doing it to frighten women and so um today i and the thing that really struck me is that uh a lot of them were saying that if uh no one in particular if uh i guess allies uh, women um are like nazis then they deserve to be beaten up by nazis yes then the, the uh, so this goes on and on and on, and then it struck me as that it's criminal to beat up a woman in her home. Like we have uh, uh, domestic violence is is handled by the state, but yet we're we're seeing public violence being sanctioned by the state. Yes, and well, that there was that scene that was right out of Alabama in the sixties where the police just let them through. They just let the violent men through. They stood aside and it's like, oh, I, I know. I mean, that is, that is totally the South during Jim Crow and desegregation is this sense that no, you as a woman do not have the protection of the law. These people have the protection of law and you, you don't possess it. Anyway, I'm sorry, I interrupted you there. Oh, but the, uh, like, like right here, um, long come uh, in that timeline, uh, there was a government ad that comes up, and it's by the Canadian government and from uh, Gender and Women's Department. I, I didn't yeah. have quite what it was, and so I looked at it and I kind of wondered what it was. Looked at it, it's a uh, a group that's being funded through the government, and then it shows all the different partnering that it does. And then it goes uh, further down into, um, I guess it's a teaching thing where come and make a pledge. And I go, pardon? And so this pledging seems to me to be directed at young people. And I thought, 
if they're pledging, this is some kind of purity testing going on. And if it's directed at girls and young people, what's the consequences if they do not comply or submit to this? My second point and last one, when you brought up uh, the barbers and surgeons, it reminded me of, uh, I think it was either Clinton or someone from his campaign that said, you don't bring, what is it, uh, a gun to a knife fight. Uh, a knife to a gunfight, yes. Yeah. So I guess it made me think, well, I, I, for the barber and surgeons, uh, it was you don't bring um, a knife to a musket fight. And so that allowed them... <laughs> I mean, the slogan was there and then it was a call to action for these guys. Well, I mean, I think there, there are a few things you're, you're picking up on there. There's, yes, the vows uh, are, are an increasingly important part of uh, the woke phenomenon. And we see that with the syndical organizations like the, um, and with syndical professions like psychology. There's a heartbreaking video of a woman who had uh, got her master's of psychology at the University of Missouri and was then asked to vow that all of these, that in order to get her degree, she still had to sign this pledge stating that trans women are women, trans men are men, sex work is work, all the usual ritual incantations. And she said, and, and you have to treat people on that basis. And she said, well, how could I treat, she said to her supervisor, how could I treat uh, GOP voters? And he goes, the purpose of the pledge is to make sure that you don't. And that was, that was very interesting that, um, uh, so this idea of making these pledges, right? These are boundary maintenance pledges. And it's funny, of course, that we're using the term pledge as we talk about the collapse of the fraternity system. Uh, that, right, in a male-gendered environment, it's forms of risk-taking, physical damage, and physical feats, right? trying to survive extreme alcohol poisoning, doing dangerous things in your vehicle. That's pledging in the old university. Uh, and pledging killed a certain number of people per year. But the point is you can't get rid of pledging. Um, it goes somewhere else. And so returning as a female gendered phenomenon pledging is associated with um, group solidarity. Not with taking risks on behalf of the group, but behaving the same as the other members of the group. Um, and right, both of these are crucial impulses to have in a human civilization. Neither one is bad, but the way they shake out organizationally is fundamentally different. Um, and that, um, forms of social cohesion that focus on independence are in some ways better suited to higher education than forms of social cohesion that are focused on interdependence. Uh, and uh, that's a problem. That's why the university has run out of gas. It, um, it can't answer those questions. It hasn't yet figured 
The point is we have to fix our gender politics before we can fix our universities in some ways. That as long as our socialization processes encourage um, these forms of female solidarity, um, if you're gonna have an egalitarian institution, there's always gonna be a risk that those forms of solidarity will take over the institution, which may make the institution more internally harmonious, but very unlikely to make the institution more curious. So um, it, uh, so it, it's a, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a strange, it's a very strange interplay. Um, the last thing I would say is yes, absolutely. I think that um, one of the worst um, neologisms of, uh, uh, that really preceded wokeness, um, but and was crucial for it. Uh, Doug Stanhope does a wonderful routine about this in uh, Beer Hall Putsch. Beer Hall Putsch is an amazingly offensive comedy special, but there are, and it's free on YouTube, but the, the things in it that it gets right are so devastatingly brilliant that it is worth a watch. And one of the things Stanhope talks about is raising awareness. Now the term raising awareness was an effort to co-opt and de-radicalize feminism because nobody talked about raising awareness in the 1970s. What women were talking about was raising consciousness. Raising consciousness and raising awareness mean very different things. Raising awareness means giving people information about a thing you think they don't know about. Raising consciousness is asking people to look at their own personal lives and see how the big ideas in the world are unfolding in their own life. Raising consciousness was about the, the, the uh, slogan, the personal is the political, was based on second wave feminist consciousness raising. And the idea was not that the women needed new information. It was connecting information women had about the world to their own lives, to seeing how domestic violence was political, to see how the ability to have your own credit card or your own bank account was political. It was about seeing the micro nature of politics. Raising awareness is and always has been a stupid, stupid waste of time. And people who are out raising awareness about what's going on with the genderists, the reason those people are winning is because everyone does know who they are and what they're like. There wasn't new information from the rally in New Zealand. The only new information from the rally in New Zealand was that the cops had been bought. That was the only new information. P I mean, that's, that's why I contend that they threw Stephen Colbert, John Stewart, and John Oliver at the unpopularity of self-ID, and they got nowhere. The last-ditch effort that allowed the Democrats to stop the red wave was Dylan Mulvaney going to the White House. And that's the point where Donald Trump became irrelevant. Donald Trump, his power came from the fact that he was the first one to figure out how appearing to be an unhinged monster on television makes people, scares people into voting for you. Not because they think it's a strategy, but because something even deeper in them makes them do it. 
that anyone who lived with domestic violence, anyone who grew up as an abused child, sees a scary, out-of-control pervert with no constraints on what he says or what he does, total impunity, they see that and there is such a, in order to feel safe, you placate them, you do whatever they want. You do whatever they want because they're out of control and they could come for you. So you comply. Even though there's no logical way you have to comply because you see that, it's such deep programming, beaten in with such severity and harshness that, and that's, and the Biden people realized, no, we will throw a bigger, crazier pervert at you. We will make our mascot the most emotionally dysregulated man on TV, not Donald Trump. And it worked. It terrified people. And they responded irrationally to their terror through reaction formation. They're going, this is fine. This is absolutely fine. Nothing is fucked up here. So, uh, all right, other questions and comments? Okay, maybe we'll, we're gonna sign off a little early today. Ah, it's Francisco, I'll throw something ahead. In. I'll throw a log into the fire. Uh, <laughs> so there's, I mean, pretty much because I just want to talk about hockey, but in the last little bit, there's been uh, oh, the, the issue with the with with the red jerseys, yeah. And and I just sort of wanted to, in term when you were talking about pledging and and sort of like getting getting a, a filter or a moment where everybody sort of has to pass through this this pledge or be completely ostracized. Um, I was just wondering about how how that might work into our conversation here, just in terms of what you, what you might have observed, or or is that in is that a form of pledging? With the... um, yeah, I, I think there's a there's a bunch going on here, and we've got to go back to Kaepernick here. Now, I um, one of the things because of my reverse credentialing, right? Conservatives are willing to hear my arguments that they would not put up with that many iterations of the argument from somebody who wasn't as hated as I am by progressives. But so I, I got into this conversation with this guy going, you know, I just think Colin Kaepernick is, you know, full of bullshit, you know, this, this taking the knee, all this other stuff, um, you know, like his, his job is just to do the damn job, not to put on his own political protest. And also like, how can he call himself oppressed when he's a millionaire? And I said, no, no, he's not saying he's oppressed by the system. They go, no, no, yes, he is. He's saying that these football players are being used as in ways that slaves were used. And I go, yes, let me explain. And then I did. So there's a particular type of slave that existed in places like Muskoka and Mexico City, where um, you, had an elite, you had elites, you had the super rich in those places, but black slaves were never used as part of a labor system there. What that meant was that the only people who had black slaves were the super rich and the black slaves all worked in domestic service and the slaves' bodies were display objects. So you wanted the blackest slave 
in the red velvet with the crazy hat and the scimitar and the epaulets as your butler, because what you were doing was you were showing that you could present the most exotic body in the world in the most exotic costume in the world. That's why in the 90s, all of the nightclubs frequented by the Japanese super rich had the blackest bouncers. The blackest people in Japan had these high-end bouncer jobs um, at, uh, at these elite nightclubs. Again, because you're showing off this exotic body and you're showing your ability to control a very powerful, very exotic body. And as I, um, as I suggested, uh, uh, as, and again, Stanhope does a brilliant routine on that. That's his, the integrity of the game routine in Beer Hall Putsch. Um, there's actually something like quite sexual and fucked up that's going on with white men needing to interact with large, strong black male bodies in a way that is somehow submissive to them. There's, there's, there are some depths to be plumbed there that uh, Stanhope plums, I won't get into all the details he coughs up, but um, there is, so we have to understand the athlete's body in a very complex way um, because Professional athletes are the richest non-agentive people in capitalism. They're paid a fortune to lead lives over which they have almost no control. And I, I think the, the reason we, we seek to tightly control those men's lives the way we do is this kind of bizarre sexualized animus uh, between uh, uh, that, that white men have uh, towards black men. Um, so how does this shake down? Well, let's think about a site of our conflict here. Now, you know how people were talking about boycott Russian this, boycott Russian that, boycott Russian everything at the start of the Ukraine war? You know what no one said? Boycott Russian porn. Um, huge portions of the porn comes out of the Russian speaking world. Porn featuring white people is full of slabs. Let's remember the etymological origin of that word, meaning slave in German, just like Welsh. Um, so, right, so there's a very, right, slabs are one of those nearly white slash newly white groups of people, uh, right, on the, on the brink of whiteness on and off for a century. Sometimes slabs get less white, sometimes they get more white. You can see all that shaking out in our geopolitics of the war. So of course, to prosecute the war, we're gonna consume more Russian porn because it's about the subordination and objectification of Slavic bodies. Because the Slavs we're siding with are the Slavs we're sending to die on our behalf in this war. And then there are the Slavs we wanna kill. Uh, so, there's a whole, so there's a way in which we're going to talk about Slavic bodies in a way that we're going to be especially inclined to talk about Slavic people's bodies the way we talk about Black people's bodies all the time. And that's where they're sitting in our cultural imaginary right now. And so that's why I think, because the first question you want to ask is, why does an NHL team choose this moment to impose the pride jersey on its players? Um, well, it chooses that moment 
because Slavic males in professional sports are at the nadir of their social power and the highest level of objectification. And so a Slavic person stands up, right? They know that this is gonna be disproportionately rejected by Slavic players. And we're now having this contest about the control of Slavic men's bodies. What a coincidence we're a year and a half into a war with Russia. So yeah, I think there are profound, um, there are pornographic features to this, there are geopolitical features to this. And I, um, and I, and right, and it's the Ukrainians we've conscripted into our war and uh, by installing this puppet government. And so, yeah, I, I'm glad you raised it. I think it, it really speaks to our time in many dimensions. It's also, I mean, right now, also with the Olympic movement, I mean, there's a real uh, move against, against Russia in the Olympic movement and non-aligned countries in the, um, by the Olympic movement. So in sport, it, there seems to be, and there's also been some sort of talk of whether or not um, Russian players in the NHL should be in some way um, sanctioned. And so it, it's interesting that that connection there that you're that you're making in terms and, of and you uh, should see the, the war is also unfolding in boxing um right there's that chechen in montreal that uh is uh, there's increasingly atten increasingly attention around him and attempt to politicize his boxing so mm. yeah it's um yeah it's a it's a big deal and uh is definitely part of the picture because Wokeness is an atavistic politics. And so it is going to just naturally reach backwards in time through our psyches and find these weird things like the, uh, like the velvet clad butler in uh, 17th century Mexico City. Uh, Cheryl. It's hard to ignore in the, sorry. So go, go ahead. I'll just briefly say, yeah. I mean, within the Canadian context, I mean, you, you have when you're talking about things like it's almost like you have to talk about hockey a little bit but the things that focus around hockey are particularly relevant to the canadian context because i mean you see at the beginning of a a canucks game where they have the land acknowledgement and then you know the pride jerseys and then the talking about sanctioning russian you know it's all sort of it kind of culturally focuses on that on that frame that canadian context frame with it with hockey, I guess, in, in some strange way, but the, the forces are sort of wrapping around that one, uh, wrapping around sport in the, in Canada for, for at this moment. And there was a shift in the nineties that my friend Dan, who's a former professional hockey player talks about, and it had to do with violence at games that the, he argued there's a zero sum of violence at hockey games that this golden age of the hockey players not beating the shit out of each other was a time when the men in the stands were assaulting each other. And that as the men in the stands got richer, as poor people got pushed out of the seats at the hockey games, hockey switched from being a place where you could go and be violent to being a place where you could go and contract out your violence to men of lower social status than yourself. 
So Canada, right, has always had a problem around its extreme forms of male passive aggression and uh, its inability of the lack of outlets for men to express rage. Uh, and hockey has always been really important for like shorting that out and being this one permissible outlet. But the nature of that violence going from personal violence to proxy violence in the 90s is absolutely crucial for understanding Canada's entry into neoliberalism. Okay, Cheryl. Maximus in, in Rome. Yes. How, how that might have looked at it Sorry, Cheryl. Yes. I'll shut up. <laughs> when you were mentioning about uh, white men's... Um, I don't know, infatuation, would it be with uh, black men or curiosity, their body? <clears throat> Excuse me. It made me think of Tarantino's, his uh, movie, where there's a, a segment um, where they take a, a black man and this terribly, um, I can't remember what they call him. It was, um, it was like a horrible, I don't know if it was a deformity or whatever, but Ultimately, oh, this is in Pulp Fiction. Yes, yeah. where he yep. ends up raping um, oh, yeah. the black man. So is that? Yeah, that, there's there's a tremendous that, amount of a, a tremendous amount of um, a tremendous amount of the American sexual imaginary is gay race play porn. Uh, that is, uh, it's always been the case. It's a problem baked right into America, um, and. Uh, you know, the thing is that, um, right, male sexuality is in all these weird boxes. They're not really in conversation with each other. And uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, Tarantino himself is highly conflicted about all this stuff. Tarantino both brilliantly documents it and epitomizes it. His aestheticization of black male bodies is really strange. You know, there's a sexual component to it. And he comes close to acknowledging that uh, at various points. Um, it's, uh, yeah, um, the, look, uh, the, uh, um, uh, you know, when it's 2 a.m. in Dixie, um, you know, Pornhub is just processing thousands and thousands of big black cock search terms that are being typed in by white men in the South. Um, that's, uh, that, that is, um, that's unfortunately part of a society that was founded on slavery that was race-based. They, right, one of the problems with living in a patriarchy is that, right, submission and begging for your life is gendered female. So, and you know that, like, all those, all those, you know, trans rights activists who are acting like violent men at that rally, you know that if you had a gun to their head, they would know exactly how to act like a woman. Uh, because that's how you beg for your life. That's how you plead for someone not to hurt you. And the South, they, they did that for too long. They screwed themselves up psychologically by these white men having this kind of power over black men that produced all kinds of weird psychological feedback. And uh, it's tragic. Uh, it's gonna take a long, long time for them to get over that. Um, and like people talk about how the legacy of slavery, like why isn't it over? It's been so long. 
Well, we often focus on like the damage to black people that slavery did. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the psychological damage to white people that slavery did. Because systems like that hurt everyone in them. You distribute power too unevenly in a system, it hurts everyone, even the people on top of it. And so white men need these, have these really problematic ways. Like, what do I do if I'm around a black man who's free? I don't know how to act. Uh, so yeah, really fucked up. Uh, anything else before I let you go? Okay. Uh, we always run out the clock on these things. I'm very pleased. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk to you soon. See you Wednesday. Thank you, Stuart.